Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. And this is episode two of our summer 2020 series in partnership and collaboration with All Tech is Human. All Tech is Human is an accelerator for tech consideration and a hub for the responsible tech community. A part of how All Tech is Human is living into their mission during these increasingly digital times is by producing regular live stream events with experts in the AI ethics space who are pushing the status quo and interrogating issues of race, gender, class, and more in the technology sector. So these episodes are slightly different than our normal weekly episodes and even our bonus interviews. The format for these episodes will feature selected audio from the previous week's All Tech is Human event and the intro and outro will focus on Dylan and I providing extra resources, action items you can all take, ways to continue the conversation started in the live stream, further reading and additional commentary. Now, before you at us on Twitter and let us know, hey, Dylan and Jess, there are some audio issues with this episode. Yeah, we know, and uh, we're sorry about that. And unfortunately, this particular episode of the All Tech is Human live stream featuring Sophia Noble and Meredith Broussard had certain audio issues that were unable to be fixed in post-production. And this was especially true of the first 10 minutes of the conversation, and especially, especially true with Meredith's and David's audio throughout. Of course, David being the host of these conversations via all tech is human. But because this conversation and the expertise of the guests are so vital to our field and our world, we wanted to make sure to include as much of the original audio as possible. So with this particular episode, because of those audio issues, we did have to cut more than we normally like to out of this conversation. Um, And also specifically with some of the questions that David asks over the course of the interview and conversation, Jess and I did have to re-record those questions uh, just for your uh, listener comfort. Um, So we tried to, again, maintain that balance of including as much of the conversation as we could, uh, while also acknowledging that there were certain parts that we did have to cut in order to make sure that the episode could be as smooth as possible. So please bear with us during this episode. Uh, We did our best. And please note that if you would like to experience the undoctored audio recording, please follow the link in the show notes to view the original All Tech is Human live stream for the event. So without further ado, we are so excited to present this live stream conversation featuring Sophia Noble and Meredith Broussard. Dr. Sophia Noble is an associate professor at the University of California, Los Angeles in the Department of Information Studies, where she serves as the co-director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. Data journalist Meredith Broussard is an associate professor at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute of New York University, and she is also the author of Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. Her academic research focuses on artificial intelligence and investigative reporting, with a particular interest in using data analysis for social good. She is also interested in ethical AI and appeared in the 2020 documentary, Coded Bias. In this live stream, the guest engaged with the question, how can we reduce data discrimination and algorithmic bias that perpetuate gender and racial inequalities? 
This conversation was moderated by All Tech is Humans, David Ryan Polgar, and the organizational partner for the event was The Bridge. Hey everyone, and welcome to this broadcast of uh, All Tech is Human. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with our organization, All Tech is Human acts as an accelerator for tech consideration, a way to increase participation in important tech policy uh, issues. And also, uh, we're trying to build out a hub for the responsible tech community. If you'd like to get involved with us, which I hope you do, please reach out uh, at alltechishuman.org. I am the founder and president of Alltech is Human. My name is David Ryan Polgar. I'd also like to thank our partner for, for today's live stream, which is The Bridge. Uh, the Bridge is breaking down silos between tech policy and politicians. Do give them uh, a check, check out, uh, subscribe to their newsletter. You can go to thebridgework.com. But really excited for all of you to join us and our two esteemed guests. We have Sophia Noble and Meredith Broussard. So Sophia and Meredith, welcome to our broadcast. Thank you. How yeah, are, first off, how are both of you you doing? I know there's a lot going on that everybody is is dealing with, but, but how's everything uh, on both of your ends? I'm definitely good. I'm. Uh, I understand most of my colleagues are on the East Coast are burning up in the heat. I just put on a scarf because it's strangely cold in Los Angeles. So, um, <clears throat> I think Mother Nature hates all of us. But uh, besides that, I'm actually I'm great and I'm happy to be here. That's what I say sometimes. Twenty twenty sounds about right. Every time I see something else in the news. So, uh, and then also Meredith, thank you for, for joining us. You might be really familiar uh, with our two guests today. Uh, they're author of two books that, that really uh, pushed a lot of the issues that we're talking about at Altec is Human and elsewhere forward. Uh, Sophia is, is the author of Algorithms of Oppression and Meredith uh, wrote the book, Artificial Unintelligence. Uh, but really uh, what I wanna start off by, by doing, and Sophia, I'll st start with you is, uh, you know, you're a professor at UCLA and Meredith professor at NYU involved with a lot of projects in this, this space, but to give us a little bit of context for our discussion around data discrimination, and algorithmic bias, I'd love to see what some of your research is, is entailing lately. And really what are some of the top of mind issues when you think about this, this area of data discrimination and algorithmic bias. So Sophia, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, thanks so much, David, for this opportunity to talk about our work. And of course, I'm always delighted to be with Professor Broussard, who I admire so much. Um, you know, we have been working really hard at UCLA. Um, my colleague, Sarah Roberts, and I have been focused for the past year on kind of standing up a new center for critical internet inquiry, where we can create a space and a place for people who are interested in thinking about issues of um, the digital broadly, um, kind of specifically with respect to how power works in digital systems. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, my work has been focused on things like um, helping my field understand that um, technical systems, digital systems can be embedded with you know, racist and sexist, bias and that they can, um, in fact, discriminate, um, that technical systems are not just a matter of how people use them, but they are also designed in ways that can really foment um, and foster oppression and social inequality. 
So I've been, um, you know, since the book Algorithms of Oppression came out, where I really tried to make the case for that, of course, a lot of things have happened um, over the last several years. And many people are writing and journalists and, and shows like this, where mm -hmm. we um, almost have a common sense understanding now of the kinds of biases that are um, embedded in these systems. Um, I'm trying to think in this moment of uh, racial injustice, profound racial injustice, and um, uh, COVID-19 about what does it mean that the sector, the tech sector in particular, big tech that has brought so much of the um, of these technologies to us is really kind of the sector that's profiting okay. right now um, during these crises. Um, they're implicated, quite frankly, in the dehumanization of Black lives. Um, in the way in which, for example, racist propaganda often flows through these systems at scale and at, with speed, um, and really kind of thinking about what it might look like to hold these companies to account. And Meredith, what about yourself? What, what's top of mind for uh, some of the issues that you're working on? Well, my book is about the inner workings and outer limits of technology. Uh, one of the things that I really engage with is the idea that there's this imaginary artificial intelligence that comes from Hollywood. And then there's real artificial intelligence, which is what we have, which is a kind of computational statistics that is better called, uh, that we sometimes call machine learning, but mm -hmm. is actually statistics. So I'm really invested in helping people understand what's real and what's imaginary about AI and big data systems. Because once we understand that, we can start uh, thinking about the many ways that these systems discriminate, the way, many ways that these systems oppress people. Uh, Sophia's work is really influential on my thinking. Uh, our colleague Ruha Benjamin also has a really fantastic book out called Race After Technology. Mm -hmm. uh, and something else exciting that's going on uh, kind of out of the field of uh, algorithmic accountability right now is the fight against facial recognition software. Uh, so I'm sure most of you have heard that the big tech companies have called a pause on developing facial recognition software. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been legislation introduced at, uh, at several levels saying, listen, facial recognition systems are discriminatory. They're better at recognizing light skin than dark skin. They're better at recognizing men than women. And the problem is so nuanced. It's not just about, oh, let's make these systems better at recognizing mm -hmm. people with a range of skin tones. The problem is actually that these kinds of systems are weaponized or disproportionately weaponized against communities of color, against poor communities. So the solution is not to make these systems quote unquote better. It's actually to ban the use of these systems overall. So it's a really important discussion to say, okay, when should we use technology? When should we not use technology? And to normalize the idea that tech is not always the best solution. The technology is not superior to other solutions. So Sophia, uh, since algorithms of oppression, a lot of your argument uh, is, is talking about kind of the ad-based platforms that we have specifically with with Google as a search engine uh, and how it can perpetuate uh, racism and sexism. 
I'm curious then why why the German public hasn't flooded to alternatives such as uh, DuckDuckGo. Uh, I'm I'm just kind of getting at uh, how do you how do you balance our awareness as a general public versus the consumer decisions that we seem to seem to be making, which might go against our our stated values. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, one of the challenges, of course, is that. Um, you know, Google and other Facebook, other kind of um, tech monopolies that are, uh, you know, have what we could think of as almost nation state status in terms of their power and resources. Um, they certainly are vying to have that kind of recognition and mm-hmm. quarters. Um I think the challenge is that they, you know, they got their start on public funding. Of course, we don't want to forget that many of the technologies that we have were really incubated by um, public funding from the National Science Foundation and all kinds of other um, public agencies that um, allowed the risk and the experimentation for these kinds of projects to really be offloaded onto taxpayers and then the profit, um, you know, and extraction to continue from the public. And so one of the things we want to remember is that it's very difficult for new entrants into um, the market to compete with the level of capital and power. And quite frankly, the um, influence that these companies have over um, legislators. Um, so you will recall maybe, you know, um, you know, more than a decade ago that the Federal Trade Commission, for example, was looking at Google's business practices and the ways in which it was suppressing small businesses in search and prioritizing its paying customers. And the FTC ruled that that was a legitimate business practice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to think about all the ways in which things like breaking up monopolies would allow for other smaller um, players to have um, uh, a crack at um, um, alternatives and and different kinds of visibilities. One of the things that I argue in algorithms of oppression is that we really need to have more publicly funded, publicly supported, public interest kinds of search um, Mm -hmm. and, and more than just search, different kinds of technologies that um, are predicated upon different value systems and not just shareholder profit. And I can tell you, for example, you know, it's, it's um, incredibly um, disheartening to see, for example, um, in the um, article that Meredith just referenced by um, Leon Yen and Aaron Sink, um, Sarkin for the markup, um, you know, when I spoke to them about that story, they were kind of trying to replicate the study that I had done eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And what they found, you know, it, it, um, the AdWords dimension of this has been the same for more than a decade. And, um, you know, I wrote about that in the book. I wrote about this in my dissertation. They come along and they replicate the very things that I found. And those things structurally, those logics cannot change. One of the things that I try to share is that the reason why it's hard to intervene upon the existing platforms is that we're talking about 20 plus years of code and um, many, many engineers, um, huge kind of um, analytic um, projects that many of the computer scientists who work on them aren't even sure how to fix 
quite frankly. So you need to have other kinds of new entrants. And I think that, you know, we have so many amazing uh, national treasures and resources from our academic, uh, our universities, libraries, public libraries, um, cultural heritage institutions. We have so many information and knowledge professionals uh, who could help us think about and differentiate um, this word content uh, and search and thinking about what is at stake when all kinds of knowledge and information and propaganda and advertising get flattened in something like a social media or search platform. And we find it harder and harder as a society to, to disambiguate um, fact from fiction, mm -hmm. um, truth from propaganda. And these are the kinds of things that are at stake if we don't have the kinds of alternatives that you're talking about. Here in the interview, David turns the conversation to ask Meredith what we need to do in the education system to ensure a bright tech future. I mean, the problem starts with monopoly capitalism. Uh, there is only one search engine that most people know about. There is only one everything store that, mm -hmm. uh, that people pay attention to. The tech giants have crowded out all of the other options and cause all the other options to go out of business. So the problem is monopoly uh, and greed. Uh, what we can do on the education side is we can push back against the narrative that technology is superior. So there's a kind of bias that I write about called techno-chauvinism, the idea that technology is superior. Mm -hmm. uh, it is an idea that's propagated by a very small and homogeneous group of people uh, who have been the recipients of most of the government funding for uh, technology development. Uh, it is a group of people who have been really well funded by venture capital. Uh, and that is not the only perspective out there. Mm -hmm. So we need to be paying attention to the voices that are not techno-chauvinist voices. Uh, we need to be paying attention to uh, the, uh, the women of color who are talking about these issues, to the uh, BIPOC and genderqueer people who are, uh, who are saying, listen, there are other ways of creating technology Mm -hmm. uh, the Western system of ethics, it's not the only one out there. And is it, and so we need to question, is Silicon Valley's ethical structure really the ethical structure that we want to embed in these technical systems that are used all over the world? I would argue no. Uh, and that conversation is one that needs to happen at every level of education. Uh, we need to be talking about it at K through 12. We need to be talking about it in social science departments. We need to be talking about it in computer science departments. We need to be speaking about it everywhere. Now, one of the things that we can do is not just to start teaching data ethics classes, because we've, we have a lot of data ethics classes out there now. It's great. ACM, the Association for Computing mm -hmm. Machinery, which is the major trade organization for computer scientists, they're talking about, they revised their code of ethics for the first time since the 1990s, wow. uh, which, you know, good job. <laughs> uh, 
stuff has changed since the 1990s in terms of computing. So, you know, better late than never. Uh, and people are talking about ethics in the computer science curriculum. Uh, it doesn't go far enough, however. Uh, on the K through 12 level, uh, we should not just be talking about computational literacy, but also media literacy. We should be talking about disinformation. Uh, we should also pay our teachers more because we don't have computer science education. We don't have really killer computer science education at K through 12 level because mm -hmm. people can make so much more money in industry than they can being a teacher that once you start teaching computer science and you realize, oh, I'm good at this, I can make 10 times more money if I teach for uh, you know, one of the big tech companies or I teach for an ed tech startup uh, and I can work you know, less hard than I do in the classroom, people leave. So let's fund our teachers better. Let's make okay. sure that our schools have all the resources that they need to flourish. And that means computers, that means electricity to power the computers, that means adequate Wi-Fi. It also means adequate books and uh, paper and markers and paper towels in the bathrooms. Uh, it's, it's, it's everything. So our schools have been profoundly underfunded. Okay. So in order, in order to fix educate, computer science education, we need to fix education overall, which is about funding better. Sophia, I'll ask you the question, what is actually giving you hope? I know it's, it's not the most hopeful time, uh, especially in, in America right now. However, uh, uh, certainly, if you're interacting with uh, a younger demographic of college and grad students, uh, I've seen firsthand a lot of a lot of passion, a lot of interdisciplinary thinking, a lot of uh, movements and projects that people are getting involved with. So, uh, from your end, what what are you seeing that you think is is going to bode well for the future, or are there people, organizations that that inspire you and that you think are on the the right path? Well, I think that the paradigm shifting is the thing that gives me the most hope, which is, I think, a process that is underway. Um, you know, there are, I think, many different kinds of reform-oriented reform um, calls and initiatives that, you know, many of my colleagues around the world are interested in um, that are kind of like additive um, thinking about, for example, you know, ethics and these kinds of things that that um, that are certainly they have a, a a place and a role. But to me, what is most hopeful are the calls for um, addressing uh, structural racism and structural inequality in our societies, because all of these logics really rest and are predicated upon that. And so this is where. I guess in my work, maybe I'm a little farther, um, you know, out uh, in in uh, my hope that we will link up thinking about things like what does it mean to live in a socially just multiracial democracy where social inequality, global social inequality, is not off the charts the way it is today. Mm -hmm. um, what does it mean that, that, that we 
can shift our thinking to thinking about how these very technologies that we're talking about, not just search, but really the paradigm of data analytics, the paradigm of big, big data, the paradigms of predictive analytics playing such a, a, a focal important role in concretizing and making permanent social inequality and social injustice. So to me, we're finally entering an, an era where we can talk in these ways about big tech. And, um, you know, I feel very hopeful because, um, you know, when I speak with legislators and regulators, people who are working on policy, they seem to have a heart that's opening up to thinking about um, restoration, reparation, what does it mean for big tech to restore and repair the democracies and the, um, the consequences of their extractive practices? So when you see this at the local level, let's say in the United States, when you see calls to defund the police, which is the major call of Black Lives Matter right now in relationship to the um, murders of African-Americans that, that happen um, continuously by law enforcement and the government in this country. Um, the question is, what might we refund and put resources into when we talk about abolishing um, harmful uh, authoritarian approaches to our um, communities and to people in our societies, to poor people, then that means we have an opportunity to think about the technologies that bolster that. So it's actually not just the officers, it's all of the technologies of surveillance and control and analytics, predictive policing. There's so many um, cloud-based services um, and backbones. Uh, so I think we need to, you know, this gives me a tremendous hope that um, millions of people are pouring out into the streets all around the world in the struggle for um, racial justice and that we are um, at a point where we can start to understand where technology is implicated in racial injustice, um, in gendered violence, um, in class violence. Um, you know, no one in the United States, certainly in California where I sit, I'm sitting in Los Angeles and I will tell you, it is, um, incomprehensible to me how we could have people experiencing homelessness, how we could have um, an, an unfunded, defunded higher education and public education system when Silicon Valley is in the, the Bay Area and Silicon Beach is right down the street. How can it be that the companies who, um, again, extract so much from the public um, turn around and avoid paying taxes, evade and issue responsibility for the role that they've played in creating the conditions of gentrification, creating the conditions of high housing costs. Um, I could go on. So I think that these linking these conversations to me is what gives me hope. It's the kind of work that I feel um, called to do. And I feel grateful that um, there's a space and a place for us to, to talk about it and press on it. Uh, I am optimistic that people are starting to feel more empowered to uh, take on issues of uh, accountability inside technology. Uh, people are uh, starting to understand more about how AI and big data systems work, which is the important first step to say, okay, I, 
I can do something to change mm -hmm. these systems. Uh, so Black Lives Matter and conversations about racial justice uh, have given me lots of hope because uh, not only is, uh, is the movement getting us toward a better society, it's also spurring conversations about, all right, social issues, how do social issues play out inside our technologies? Uh, and we're, uh, people are no longer just imagining that technology is something inaccessible, that it is the domain of, uh, of the lone genius. Uh, they're saying, all right, technology is just the mainstream and mundane part of our lives. And it is made up of different deliberate choices by groups of people. And it doesn't have to be the way that it is. We don't have to settle for what Mark Zuckerberg thinks that society ought to be like. Because Mark Zuckerberg is wrong about an awful lot of things about how society operates. Uh, and his technology does not work as well as he would like you to think. Uh, in fact, it actively harms people in many ways. So I'm really excited that people are starting to have the conversation about let's make better technology, let's make anti-racist technology. Uh, I'm glad that there are books like Sophia's out there. Uh, another uh, handful of books that you might want to read on this topic, if you haven't read Weapons of Math Destruction, uh, it should definitely be on your list. Uh, there's a book called Technically Wrong, which is mm -hmm. about uh, sexism in technology. There's a book called Black Software by Charlton McElwain that is about the history of African-Americans in uh, technology that has been you know, basically erased. Our history has been erased or suppressed. Um, and uh, Joey Bolamwini, who uh, wrote the groundbreaking Gender Shades paper, uh, which uncovered the harms of facial recognition, uh, just signed a new deal for a book that's going to come out in a couple of years. So I'm very excited about uh, the folks who are shifting the narrative. At this point, David steers the conversation to ask the guests how to get involved. Well, one of the things I want to remind people is that it's not just people uh, who are uh, allegedly important or powerful who make the changes in our society. It's actually the people who exploit and expose the contradictions of our societies who really move the needle in, in many, many different kinds of social movements. So I consider myself part of, let's say, an abolitionist movement around these kinds of harmful technologies. That's where I locate myself. But I remind people that, um, you know, abolitionist, for example, against the enslavement of African peoples um, all throughout the world um, have, were in the minority. You know, people look back and with a kind of a retrospective on history and they think everybody was against um, enslavement. But in fact, it was a very, very small portion of people. And those people, what they did is they used the system and they exploited the contradictions. They used the, they understood the language of things like the constitution and they were able to highlight the contradictions of the alleged promises of the constitution. 
So I think we're still in that moment. What I think that we have an opportunity to do, you don't have to be a computer scientist, you don't have to be a professor to do this. Everyday people can see these contradictions and highlight and make sense of them. And of course, we have voting power. This next election will absolutely be crucial, not just at the top of the ticket, but all the way down into local races. It's so important. So people have voting power. Um, they also have the power to um, talk about and highlight, of course, we can withdraw our participation, we can demand, and we can even run for offices, um, you know, and support candidates who have a localized uh, tech agenda. Mm -hmm. And of course, one of the ways we've seen um, people push back, I mean, in Los Angeles, I will tell you, it was people who were organizing around um, those who are experiencing homelessness in Skid Row in Los Angeles, who, who saw the effects of things like predictive policing and the way that LAPD was deploying facial recognition and other types of technologies. And they were in fact the people who helped raise the awareness such that other people could get involved in trying to get those kinds of technologies banned in our city by LAPD. Um, it's women who are in low-income housing um, in New York who see the installation of technologies on their buildings, facial recognition and other kinds of so alleged security measures that in fact are targeting and as Meredith said, being weaponized against them as poor people and as people of color. They are the people who, before you know it, are exploiting and talking about that contradiction and helping us make the change. So I think that um, the most powerful people are people who just open their eyes and notice and speak and share, contact reporters, contact scholars, help us amplify the kinds of um, dangerous things. You know, it's um, people really, I think, underestimate the role of these technologies. And of course, um, Shoshana Zuboff's new book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, so important in helping us understand that in fact, many of the predictive technologies, which are really the backbone of how most of these systems work, um, are designed to create very small worlds of opportunity to profile us into categories that quite frankly will over-determine what's possible for ourselves and for our children. You know, imagine what it's like that your kids are gonna be tracked with biometrics from the time they take that first flight to go see grandma all the way through the rest of their lives, linking up all and making all these data profiles about the prodigy homework that they did or didn't do, the number of questions they missed in their online learning sessions, all the ways in which new data profiles are being made about millions and millions of people that then be, give them a score that determines whether they're uh, worthy of a mortgage, worthy of a college admission. These are the kinds of, of um, ways in which these technologies, I think, are, are being exploited. And we really have a responsibility to care for ourselves and future generations and to um, do the unpopular work of being um, abolitionists in these ways about the things that are harmful. And so I think that um, there is space for everyone to, uh, who cares. 
I'll just lastly say that at the Center for Critical um, Internet Inquiry at UCLA, you can, of course, subscribe through our site. We try to push out studies and reports and research to people who just want to be informed um, and kind of get uh, some help in sifting through all the stories uh, to focus on what to, what to read and what to know. Here in the interview, David poses a question to Meredith about the technology that she believes folks out in the world most need more agency in the development of and or the technology that she sees folks most pushing against right now or in the future? Oh, self-driving cars. Absolutely. Uh, Self-driving cars are the biggest scam out there. Self-driving cars do not work as well as the marketers would like you to think they do. Uh, All of the promises we're about, oh, we're going to have totally autonomous cars by 2020. And here we are in 2020, and the big success was a self-driving parking lot shuttle (laughs) that, you know, ultimately didn't actually work at all. It needed a human driver, and it kept breaking, and it doesn't work in weather, and it's just a big disaster. It's a waste of billions and billions of dollars. Uh, And when we start thinking about self-driving cars and what a foolish idea it is, how badly they work, how much money has been wasted. We can also start talking about uh, the way that autonomous uh, drone technology is being used in uh, warfare, which is also terrible. And uh, once you start looking into it, you quickly realize that these kinds of technologies are being used in profoundly unethical ways, and uh, it's going to be an enormous disaster. Uh, So... I think that people uh, can use self-driving cars as an example of uh, technological hype that has never panned out. And when you hear different kinds of hype, you can compare it to the self-driving car hype and say, okay, does this hype have any merit? Because most of the time, it's just marketing. Uh, we have lots of lessons that we can uh, that we can learn from technologies in the past, uh, and a couple of resources that I would direct people to. Uh, in addition to Sophia's center, also the Center for Critical Race and Digital Studies, mm-hmm. uh, which is run out of NYU, and also uh, the relatively new field of public interest technology, which is made up of people who are kind of drawn from what used to be called the civic tech community. Uh, people in the policy community, people, and so public interest technology folks are thinking about how do we design better systems? How do we design technology for the public good? As David moves towards wrapping up the conversation, he asks Sophia and Meredith for their final thoughts and also where people like you can continue the conversation with them, where you all can get in touch with them or follow them. Thank you so much for this opportunity to come. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. And um, it's always great to be with Professor Broussard. Um, I'll just say that I think that the kinds of things... Um, you know, we should be looking into the future with our, um, again, you know, thinking about predictive technologies and how they get deployed. You know, really these are, if you pull back to uh, out of the weeds of specific technologies, the questions really are values questions. Will we put these technologies in service of um, greater social equality into high quality of life for everyone? Or, or will these be 
fetishes for the wealthy, um, for the well-connected, for the people in the United States and Europe, at the expense, quite frankly, of everyone else. And in fact, at the expense of the environment. Mm -hmm. So I think there are a lot of values questions that we need to pull back and think about, like, you know, what do we really need? And of course, the pandemic has created an opportunity, I think, for many of us to think about um, what's necessary and what is unnecessary and um, what's at stake for many of us. We have 40 million people in the United States who are unemployed right now, and we have such an opportunity um, to reimagine um, a good quality of life for everyone um, and extending beyond the borders of just the United States. It's not a shortage of resource and a shortage of money. It's a shortage of um, fair and equitable distribution. Um, and of course, this sector is one of the most profitable sectors in the world. So we have to think about the values. And I think, you know, um, I recently wrote a piece about the loss of the public goods to big tech, you know, um, and I think those are the kinds of things that are very important um, things to be thinking about as we move forward. You know, there was a time in the United States when it was Im impossible and implausible for people to imagine, for example, the American economy running on anything but big cotton, you know, and that paradigm required the enslavement of African peoples and it required the occupation of indigenous people's lands. So the question is, um, how did we get to a place where we were able to shift the paradigm from a, just an entrenchment in the belief that that was the only way? So I guess I, I, I offer that we could imagine, even though big tech is, you know, deeply intertwined in our financial markets and our educational systems, um, it's still plausible to imagine other ways. And I think that this is um, uh, just the beginning. We're just at the beginning of these conversations. And I really hope that we will um, together, um, you know, uh, harness our resources and our creativity and our intellect and our power and our emotions and our heart toward the right um, things that are, um, that are that are reasonable for all. It's very well said. Well, count me in on your your journey. Uh, and where can you recommend for people to uh, continue the conversation with you uh, or to, to follow you online? Well, you can certainly um, follow uh, the center, which is at C2I2 underscore UCLA. I'm on Twitter at Safia Noble. Um, uh, I'm on Instagram, um, uh, kind of. Um, but please, you know, the best way if you want to um, be in touch is really to um, reach out to our team at the Center for Critical Internet Inquiry at UCLA. Terrific. Uh, and then Meredith, what about yourself? Any uh, closing closing thoughts? And also, where can people continue the conversation with you? In terms of closing thoughts, I would just offer that the way that AI and big data systems work is they replicate the world as it is. And I'm really invested in getting us toward the world as it should be. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to continue the conversation, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mayor Broussard. Uh, my website is MeredithBroussard.com. Uh, and uh, I am working on a new book about uh, the intersection of race and technology. Uh, so please reach out if you have, uh, if you have stories about uh, the way that uh, 
technology and race intersect or if you've uh, kind of suffered at the hands of a technological system. We want to again thank David Ryan Polgar and All Tech is Human for putting on this event and for Sophia and Meredith's expertise on this subject. As always, the live stream may be over, but there are many ways each of us can take action. We are going to now debrief our biggest takeaways from the live stream, including specific actions that listeners can take and resources to continue the conversation. So Jess, what are some of the action items that we gleaned from this episode? Well, we have action items for everyone, action items for technologists and coders, action items for policymakers, and for computing educators. So starting with the action items for everyone. First, join the conversation. Learn about the basics of artificial intelligence and machine learning, even if computer science is not your field. Next, talk about how social issues can be played out in technologies. Think about how we can all be empowered if we start looking for where these social inequalities persist in the technologies that we use every single day. See the contradictions in technology. Seek them out. Really look for them. And also, use your voting power. Demand candidates that have a positive tech agenda. Finally, make it personal. If you're looking for motivation to get involved, consider how data discrimination and algorithmic bias might impact you, your family, or your loved ones. Next, we have advice for technologists and coders. First, listen to the voices that are not techno-chauvinist voices. This can be women of color, BIPOC, and gender-fluid people who are already researching other ways of creating technology, especially those who highlight that Western ethics are not the only ethics out there. Also, think critically about predictive technologies and how they are deployed. If you are coding predictive technologies, ask value questions like, is this technology necessary? What is at stake with this technology? And will this technology benefit all of society? For policymakers, your action items are to advocate for more publicly funded, publicly supported, public interest technologies that are predicated upon different value systems, not just shareholder profit. If you're looking for motivation, think about what is at stake when all kinds of knowledge, propaganda, and information get flattened into platforms like social media and search engines. Next, Advocate for more funding for education, especially K through 12, and especially for computing educators who are being enticed to work for big tech companies instead of teaching. For computing educators, your action items are to talk about the topics that were mentioned today all throughout the CS curriculum. If you're a K through 12 educator, consider including in the tech ethics classroom, media literacy and disinformation. And finally, if you're looking for more resources and you're interested in including more ethics content in your computing classroom, check out the resources on our Continue the Conversation page at RadicalAI.org. So as Jess just mentioned, the conversation does not stop here. For each of the episodes in our series with All Tech is Human, you can find a detailed Continue the Conversation page on our website, RadicalAI.org. That website, again, for the third time in about one minute, is RadicalAI.org. 
And for each episode, you can find the entire comprehensive list of the action items that we just summarized, as well as all of the annotated resources that were mentioned by the guest speakers during the live stream. In addition, you'll be able to find ways to get involved, relevant books, media, and other publications. If you have ideas for resources to include, we invite you to share them on our Continue the Conversation page as a comment. Our goal is to build a space together that helps us raise awareness and take action. So again, the conversation does not stop here. We would love to hear from you. For more information on today's show, please visit the Continue the Conversation page at, you guessed it, RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod, and don't miss our next episode that comes out weekly on Wednesdays. As always, stay radical. Stay radical.